Today we're going to do a bit of a Bible study sermon, which I, again, kind of a little geeking out just for fun. Um, we're going to talk about Peter and Cornelius, but in order to make sense of that story, we've got to back up just a little bit, and so we're going to head to Matthew 28 if you've got your Bibles or your Bible apps, and we're going to look at what is often called the Great Commission. About 40 days after Jesus' resurrection, the Bible says that he met with his disciples on a mountain, and, and there he gave his disciples their final assignment. Let me read what he said. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Now, in the 20th century, as Christians in the 20th century, we often miss how shocking this command was, uh, especially to the people who heard it the first time. You see, Jesus was commanding his followers to make disciples of all the nations. And the word nations is actually a Jewish word for non-Jews. Sometimes it's translated Gentiles. In other words, Jesus was telling his disciples to go make disciples of all the people they were normally not to associate with, and that would be the, the Gentiles. First century Jews were taught not to associate with non-Jews, much less enter their homes and eat with them. This would make them unclean, and they would have to go through elaborate rituals to make themselves clean again if they wanted to enter the temple. Otherwise, they were barred from the temple for associating with non-Jews. And here you have Jesus telling his disciples to do way more than just associate with Gentiles or to even much less go into their house. Jesus is saying that he wants his disciples to spend time with these Gentiles, to walk with them as they learn to follow Jesus and become his disciples. But Jesus is not finished yet. Before he ascends to his father, he's got more to say about his disciples' final assignment. So let's head over to Acts 1 and listen to what Jesus has to say. Once again, just like in Matthew 28, Jesus has gathered his disciples. This time he tells them that the Holy Spirit will come upon them and empower them to be his witnesses to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now let's slow this down a little bit and take a look at what Jesus is saying. The first Second and fourth locations create concentric circles. Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. That's, that makes sense to his disciples. Notice how, though, Samaria is not part of those concentric circles. It's actually a region just north of Jerusalem. Now, why would Jesus include Samaria? Well, let's just take a look at, at who Jesus is sending his disciples to. When Jesus sends his disciples to Jerusalem, he's sending them to people who are just like them, people who know the law, people who, who worship Israel's God and know the customs and know the temple. And when Jesus sends his disciples to Judea, he's sending them to people more or less like them. This is Jewish territory. But when Jesus sends his, people, his disciples to the ends of the earth, he's actually sending them to non-Jews. As we noted before, this was a little bit shocking, sending, Jesus, sending Jews to serve among non-Jews. But it wasn't near as shocking as Jesus' next command. 
You see, when Jesus sends his disciples to Samaria, he's sending them to people they can't stand, to people they find disgusting, to people they absolutely loathe. Why is that? Well, it's because Samarians are people who believe in less than half of the Bible. Samarians are people who don't worship at the temple, rather they worship at Mount Gerizim. And Samaritans are people who live absolutely scandalous lifestyles, things I will not repeat here because you don't want to know what they are. There's plenty of things to dislike here. But it turns out, though, that Samaritans, these people, they are the apple of God's eye people whom Christ died for, just like the Jews. In fact, we read in the Gospel of John, chapter 4, that Jesus himself spent time with Samaritans. He spent time with the woman at the well who was a Samaritan. So by now you'd think, between the command to make disciples of all nations and the command to be witnesses in places like Samaria, that the disciples would, would get it that the good news of Jesus' life-giving love and forgiveness was for everybody, no matter who they are or where they've come from. You'd think that the disciples would finally get it. Well, not so much. Let's go now to Acts chapter 10, where we heard our Bible reading, and see what happens here. We'll begin with Cornelius. So who is Cornelius? Well, he was a Roman, and he was a centurion in the Roman military very much like a sergeant in, in the United States Army. He was in charge of 80 other soldiers, but he was also known as a God-fearer. That means that he worshiped Israel's God. It means that he kept the law, the Torah, as best as he could in his situation as a Roman military officer. That means that he prayed for those around him, and he even supported the poor out of his own resources. As a result, he was respected by the surrounding Jewish community. But even with all that, even with all that, he was still an outsider. He was still a Gentile, unclean, still second class, still not part of God's people. He essentially was on the outside of the house with his hands up against the, the big plate glass window, staring into the party, but never invited to go inside. Now, one day, Cornelius received a vision, and he saw an angel who told him, Cornelius, your prayers and gifts to the poor have not gone unnoticed. Send some of your people to Joppa to get a man named Simon Peter. So Cornelius did just that, and he sent an entourage down to Joppa to go get Peter. Meanwhile, the apostle Peter has been making quite a name for himself in Joppa. It turns out that he had just raised the widow Tabitha from the dead. And this was a very public act for Tabitha was very, very well known for her love for all the people and in particular for the way she cared for the poor. And so when she died, a whole lot of poor people were wondering what was going to happen to them. So after Peter raised Tabitha from the dead, that was a very big deal to a whole lot of folks. And so now everybody was watching what he would do next. So one day when Peter was taking a break from ministry, the Bible says that he went up to the roof of his house to pray, as was his daily habit. He was also quite hungry as he was waiting for the evening meal to be prepared. Suddenly, in the middle of his prayers, a large sheet containing all kinds of unclean animals appeared out of the sky. 
And with it, a voice said, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Peter replied, oh, no, my Lord, I'll never do that. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. But the voice persisted and said, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Now, this vision happened not once, not twice, but three times. Now, just as an aside, this should not have been a problem. Peter shouldn't have needed three visions to get it because earlier, if you read in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus himself declared all foods clean. Apparently, Peter had forgotten all about that, hence the three visions. So right after the third vision, just as as that was finishing up, Cornelius' entourage came to Peter's house and knocked on his door. And then God's Holy Spirit told Peter, go to the door and open it for him, for I have sent them to you. So Peter obeys, opens the door for Cornelius' entourage, and lets them in. And this is what they have to say. They told Peter, we have come from Cornelius the centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jews. Besides, an angel told him to ask for you and to come to his house so that he would hear what you have to say. Well, now here's where it gets very, very interesting. The Bible says that Peter, remember, a Jew who's not supposed to associate with Gentiles, Peter lets these Roman Gentiles into his home. Now, he's a very public person. He's just raised someone from the dead, so everybody's watching his every move. And here they see this whole group of Romans entering into a Jewish household. This must have caused quite a stir, maybe even quite the scandal in his neighborhood. Remember, because of Tabitha rising from the dead, Peter is a very public figure, and everybody's watching. So the next day, Peter and some of the other believers head out with Cornelius and his entourage up to Caesarea, where they arrive the following day. When they arrived at Cornelius' house, Peter went inside and found a huge crowd waiting for him. Basically, Cornelius' house is stuffed with people. Once again, let's pause and realize what a big deal this is. Again, Peter, a Jew, is entering a Gentile home, breaking all kinds of rules, at least according to the traditions. And not just any Gentile home. This is the house of a member of the Roman occupation forces, and they were not much loved. No self-respecting Jew would ever set foot into the home of a Roman soldier. Peter himself acknowledged how scandalous this was. This is what he said. Normally, it's against the Jewish law for Jews to associate with Gentiles, much less visit with them or enter their home. Peter says, but God has shown me that I should no longer call anyone impure or unclean. God has shown me that I should no longer call anyone impure or unclean. Then Peter asked Cornelius why he sent for him. Cornelius tells Peter that three days ago, a man in shining clothes appeared to him and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is the guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. Then Cornelius told Peter, now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Talk about a total setup. It's like God playing a slow pitch underhand, and all Peter has to do is swing at it. 
So at this, Peter begins to proclaim the good news of Jesus to the crowd gathered in Cornelius' house. I now realize how true it is, Peter says, that God does not show favoritism, but accepts those from every nation who fear him and who do what is right. Peter continues by telling Cornelius that, and his household how he and his fellow apostles were witnesses of everything Jesus did in Judea and in Jerusalem, including his suffering, death, and resurrection. And now God has commanded them to proclaim to everyone that Jesus is the one whom God has appointed as judge of the living and the dead. In other words, through him, God is going to make things right and put everything back together. That's who Jesus is, the one who's going to restore all things. And as all of Israel's prophets have testified, everyone who trusts in him will receive forgiveness of sins through his name. But then something really strange happens. In the middle of Peter's preaching, the Holy Spirit comes upon this crowd in, in Cornelius' house, and they begin to speak in tongues. Luke says that the believers who came with Peter, remember they're all Jewish believers, were astonished that the Holy Spirit had been poured out to, as they say, even the Gentiles. Apparently, they're still not getting it, Peter and his people. Non-Jews, the Roman occupiers of all people, are receiving the Holy Spirit. This is huge. This is what the prophets like Isaiah prophesied long ago, that one day even Israel's enemies would become part of God's people. Here's how the prophet Isaiah said it would happen. Uh, this is in Isaiah chapter 19, beginning at verse 23, if you've got your Bibles or Bible apps. This is what the Lord said. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Babylon. Remember, Egypt and Babylon are, are, are Israel's sworn enemies. Israel tried, Egypt tried to exterminate the, the, the Hebrews, and Babylon conquered uh, Judah, and, and, and everybody was sent off into exile. So here we go. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Babylon. The Babylonians will go to Egypt and the Egyptians to Babylon. The Egyptians and Babylonians will worship together. So far, not too shocking, but here we go. In that day, Israel will be the third, not the first, not the second, but the third along with Egypt and Babylon, a blessing on the earth. Hey, wait a second. Only Israel's supposed to be a blessing on the earth. At least that's what God told Grandpa Abraham and Grandma Sarah. What's this with Egypt and Babylon being a blessing on the earth? That's only what Israel's supposed to do, but God has other plans. And then it concludes with the Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people. Blessed be Babylon, my handiwork. And blessed be Israel, my inheritance. Listen to that. Through the prophet of Isaiah... God is treating Egypt and Babylon as if they were Israel, his own people. This is God's end game, that the whole world will become his people, no matter who they are or where they've come from. And here it is, Israel's radical vision happening right in front of Peter and his friends. So when Peter finally fixes his jaw up from off the floor, he says, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And so Cornelius and all those gathered at his house were baptized in the name of Jesus the Messiah. Let's pause for a second. What's up with baptism? 
I mean, what's the big deal with baptism? Why was that the thing they did once the Spirit fell on them? Well, let's do a little bit of a history lesson. Baptism in the first century was originally the way non-Jews became Jews or how Jews renewed their faith. Baptism served as a symbol that pointed to the exodus where God led his people through the Red Sea and delivered them from Pharaoh and his army. So just like crossing the Red Sea, when Jewish converts and those renewing their faith were baptized, they went into a river and came out the other side, and in doing so, were delivered from their own personal Egypt, that is, their own enslavement to sin, death, and brokenness. In this way, they participated with God's people in that first exodus and joined them on their journey towards the promised land, which for first century Jews meant God's promise of new life, a forever friendship, and ultimately the restoration of all things. Because the first generation of Jesus' followers were all Jews, it was only natural that they would adopt baptism as the way that people became Christians. And so now, just as Isaiah and the prophets have foretold, Gentiles were trusting in Jesus. Gentiles were being baptized and making the journey through the river and being freed from their own personal Egypt. And Gentiles were becoming part of God's people. And this meant this, that no one was beyond the reach of God's amazing and forgiving love. No matter who they are or no matter where they've come from, let me say that again, no one was beyond the reach of God's amazing and forgiving love. No matter who they are, no matter where they've come from. And guess what? That also includes us. So where are you today in all of this? Are you someone who's been told that they don't measure up? Are you someone who's been told that, that you're an outsider? And maybe it has to do with where you've come from. Or perhaps it has to do with your gender or your skin color. Or maybe you feel like you're an outsider because of a secret you carry. Or something in your past. Or a habit that you are so ashamed of and you're terrified you'll be exposed and people will just walk away. Well, I've got some good news for you. In fact, it's amazing news. God's amazing and forgiving love is available to everyone, no matter who they are or where they've come from. Listen to that. No matter who they are or where they come from, God's amazing love and forgiveness is available to everyone. And that includes you and me. So if that's you, standing on the outside looking in, with your face and hands pressed up against the window, wondering when someone will invite you. Just take the dare. Just let go of your life and trust God with it. Because he, I promise, is the one person who will not walk away. Because there is nothing, nothing that will get in the way of his love for you. No matter who you are or where you've come from, nothing will get in the way of God's love for you. Absolutely nothing. One of the stories we tell about God's amazing forgiveness has to do with people who at crunch time fail Him. And if you would think there would be anybody who would be outsiders, they would be the people who failed Jesus right when He needed them the most. And they proved themselves to be betrayers, deniers, and cowards.
running away, denying him, and betraying him for 30 pieces of silver. But Jesus, knowing all that this would happen, what does he do? He takes the bread and he breaks it and he gives it to these failures, to these betrayer and to this denier and to all the folks who run away. And what he says to them is, this is my body given for you. You who do not measure up. You who stand on the outside. You who carry secrets. You have habits that you just can't break. This is for you. And then he takes the cup. And this is the cup of liberation in the Jewish Passover. The cup of freedom. And he says, this is my blood of the new covenant. This is the blood of my promise that I will set you free just as I set free my people from Egypt. I will set you free with this. This is my blood given and shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins, no matter who you are or where you've come from.